Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Holy Father, we come before you and thank you for this day that you've given. We thank you for the blessing to be able to assemble together with our saints. We thank you, our God, that we still have the liberty to do so in this country and pray that we might ever have this blessing. Yea, that you would grant us the liberty that you would watch over those who rule over us that we might ever be blessed to lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We pray for our leaders. We know that it is not impossible for you to change their hearts, that they would be godly leaders over us, and we would pray for that. Nevertheless, thy will be done. We pray, Father, whatever situation we find ourselves, that we would never compromise truth, but we would ever lovingly contend for truth, and yet at the same time that we would live as you would have us to live as a Christian in this world. Yea, Father, we know that without you we can do nothing. We know that without your presence uh, it's just an empty shell in our lives. We don't want that. And we know that uh, we could work up some emotional uh, fervor, We don't want that, and yet at the same time, we desire that our hearts and souls be moved by Thy Holy Spirit. We thank You for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We thank You for the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You for loving us and choosing us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And I pray, Father, that it would just this would not be... uh, a mere doctrine with us, but that it would be one of the very vitals of our spiritual life that would cause us to enjoy you and enjoy fellowship with you more and more on a personal basis. I pray, Father, that you would continue to be with this congregation, that you would encourage them and strengthen them, bless them to ever contend for the faith that is delivered unto the saints. I pray that if it would seem good in your sight that you might bless uh, their cords to be lengthened and their stakes strengthened, that you might increase them and build them up numerically, if it be thy will, more in particularly that they would be built up in the most holy faith, be built up in communion and fellowship with you and one another, be built up to be strengthened by your might and to serve you with all fullness and joy and peace and believing. Now help us as we continue forth in this worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back to uh, 1 Peter and uh, look some more with regard to uh, the doctrine of election. I do want to say uh, one thing kindly as a a follow-up from this morning, and uh, that is that as a Christian, you will often feel all alone in a strange land. This is normal for the believer. Did you hear that? This is normal. This is normal for the believer because the Christian will never, quote, fit in to this world. So it's normal that you would have that. Much more could be said about that, but uh, we'll go on. I want us to go on to the doctrine of election in more particular. Here in First Peter 2 says that, of course, uh, as I brought out this morning, The word elect is actually in the first verse 
I don't have any problem with it being in the second, but it, I think it's more powerful with what we said this morning. But as our uh, being strangers and scattered, but that our election is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Election, though a Bible truth, is not a doctrine that we believe in order to try to prove Arminians wrong. And we need to keep that in mind. Election is a vital doctrine. It's vital to what we believe. And while we do not want to have a spirit of error or uh, haughtiness about us, we should not be ashamed of the doctrine of election. In fact, it ought to be precious to us. After all, think about God and who He is in all of His majesty, in all of His beauty. I like that phrase in Scripture that you worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Think about His eternity, His omniscience, His omnipresence. I mean, just there's no limit to Him. He ever existed. And this, this magnificent being in sovereign grace elected you. Before the world was ever created, before there was ever an atom, as far as we know, because God is uncompounded, pure spirit. Angels are spirits, but they are compounded. They are made up of something. We are compounded. We are put together. God is uncompounded, pure spirit. And before anything was ever created, more than just in His mind and in His purpose, but in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, He elected not only a group of people, but God in sovereign mercy elected Jimmy Barber. Put yourself there. That God had you in mind. And you say, why? And I don't know. Brother Herman and Sister Ann remembers a precious old saint by the name of Sister Hayes. And in her 80s, she started tending there at Fraser where we were worshiping. And for 50 years, she had been a Sunday school teacher in the Southern Baptist. She was raised a Methodist, and she knew when she joined the Methodist church that immersion was the proper mode, and she uh, had them to immerse her as a Methodist. And when she married her husband, who was a Southern Baptist, and she joined the Southern Baptist, uh, naturally they, at that time, I don't know that they would do that today, but at that time they required her to be immersed again. And so <clears throat> after attending their Fraser for a while, uh, the Lord blessed me to uh, baptize her at uh, 82 years of age. But prior to that, she was hearing this strange doctrine of election. And uh, as she was, and she would call me virtually every day and talk to me for an hour or two about the Bible. And uh, sometimes I didn't have the right spirit about listening to her or talking to her i have to had to repent of that many times but she was a precious old saint and i speak of her quite often from time to time but when she began to start under uh, talking about the doctrine of election she didn't really understand it at that time of course we never understand it but anyway i'll get to that and uh, but she said 
Well, why would God choose some and not another? Of course, the only answer I had just because He wanted to. Well, I didn't know that at that time, but that that just made her mad. It just and she later confessed that that every time I'd say that, it just burned her up because I didn't have an answer for it. Well, after the Lord blessed her to see it, uh, often from time to time we'd be sitting around at somebody's house and she'd look over with that twinkle in her eye and grin and say, just because he wanted to. <laughs> and uh, she caught on to it. But when you, and, and I said all of that to say, why did God elect one and not another? Just because he wanted to. There was nothing about your beauty or lack of beauty, your strength or lack of strength, about your color, or your race, your your heritage, uh, your mother, your father, or being an American. It was nothing that caused God to elect you. He elected you in eternity before the world began simply because He wanted to. He loved Jacob. He hated Esau. Somebody said, well, that just means he loved him less. Well, I guess if that's the case, he loved Jacob more than he loved Esau. If he <laughs> hated Jacob less than he hated, or hated you know, Jacob less than he hated Esau. But anyway, you can, you know, you can try to figure all of this out and slice the cake and, and put it up to where you can digest it. It comes back down to the, the infinite wisdom and power of God. But we need to our communion with God is to be enjoyed. And when is the last time you enjoyed the doctrine of election? I'm not talking about from some way that you could prove that to someone and, and prove them wrong. I'm talking about when is the last time, and we could say this about any doctrine, that you really enjoyed the doctrine and the fact that God elected you, and when is the last time you have you thanked God for electing you? Have you ever done so? Have you ever thought about it? Don't be afraid. Let me. Well, let me. Maybe I need to rephrase this. We don't want to have false humility. We want to be humble. We don't want to be arrogant or anything like that. But as a parent, there is nothing any more enjoyable for a parent to hear their child tell them how much they appreciate something that the parent has done for them. Well, don't you know that your Heavenly Father, speaking as man, has great delight in hearing you tell Him that you love Him and that you thank Him for loving you when there was no reason about you that He should do so? So as we endeavor to look at this doctrine some, Let's try to keep that in mind. As we said before, the doctrine of election is often hated by many who claim to be Bible believers. And there are those who present the doctrine of election as nothing more than God ratifying the actions of man. And what we mean by ratifying is that God looked down through time and elected those who would believe. Now, if that's the case, then election is based on what man would do. It's not based on the pure sovereign grace of God. God is only ratifying, graciously ratifying what man does, and therefore God's election is based on man's activity. And if that's the case, 
then we should thank God for noticing what I have done and therefore electing me. That wouldn't be right if we really believe the doctrines of grace. And therefore, that would be a work based upon what man has done. or uh, The election would be based on what man has done. But not only that, the Bible declares that faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8, we know that. The Bible also declares in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2, that all men have not faith. Well, if all men do not have faith, and faith is a gift of God, why is it that all men do not have faith? Because God hasn't given it to them. So if foreknowledge was God looking down through time and seeing who would believe, it still would have to be by God's sovereign grace because God is only recognizing and electing those whom He gave faith to to believe. And so it's still election <laughs> because he didn't, give, he didn't give it to everyone. He gave it to some and not to others. So you're still, His foreknowledge is still based on election if that were the case. Others maintain that election is where God votes for you and the devil votes for you and then you cast the deciding vote. Well, what uh, that may sound good to some, but there's not a verse of Scripture in the Bible to indicate that. Not one. Not one. But the Scriptures teach election, and there are many, there's basically two different words, and translated uh, elect and translated chosen, mainly from the same Greek word. And I could give you plenty of scriptures for that. And if I, at home, I, I did that and gave a whole lot of scriptures. And we went through, uh, I don't know, I probably have uh, 25, 30, or 50 scriptures here on the doctrine of election. And then we went through and showed how God chose Abraham and called him out of Ur of Chaldee when he left everybody else there in their own idolatry, in their own wicked worship. And then out of the twelve tribes of out of the twelve tribes of Israel, God chose one tribe to be the priest and said nobody else could. Why that? Why only one? Why at Levi and not the others? He never said so. Why? God chose Saul to be the first king of Israel, and Scripture says that God chose him even though the people wanted a king. Uh, like the other nations round about, and it wasn't the right thing to do. First Samuel ten twenty four and twelve thirteen shows that God chose Saul to be the first king, and then He chose David to replace Saul, and He chose Jerusalem as the place to build the temple. He chose Judah for the kingly tribe. He chose Solomon to replace David to build the temple. Why did He choose Solomon and not Nathan? Nathan was David's son too, not the prophet Nathan. And in the genealogy of Luke, it goes through Nathan and not through Solomon because Luke is showing Christ as the Son of Man. Matthew shows depicts Christ as the, the, the King of, of God, and therefore it goes through Solomon. The lineage goes through Solomon and not through Nathan. So we can look at a lot of things uh, along this line. Why was Paul chosen? Why were the twelve chosen? Why were there only why the, the five hundred that were chosen to see Christ after his resurrection and not others? And then there's the problem of first Peter chapter five, excuse me, first Timothy chapter five, where he talks about the elect angels. The reason some angels did not fall is because they were elected. 
And I never have heard any uh, any Armenian or anybody else uh, think that it was unjust that God elected some angels and not others. So we have all of those different things that we could study with just studying the doctrine of election in the Scripture. But I want us to look at some Scripture this afternoon with the fact of election unto salvation. And again, I want you to keep in mind, by the way, I just went through about... Uh, uh, eight different sermons. <laughs> That's on the internet. And, uh, but I want us to look at le- election unto salvation. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 20. Peter did not try to prove the doctrine of election. He just stated it. He just talked about these saints, how they were elected unto salvation. Elected through uh, the foreknowledge of God, in other words. In Matthew chapter 20, he says, speaking about the laborers, and he gives a parable there, giving everyone a penny and all of that. But all I want is verse 16, well, verse 15 first. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? Is thine eye evil because I am good? Now, notice he's teaching and this would be good for parents as well as government and everybody else to, to, to learn. But the Lord Jesus gave this illustration, this parable, this lesson, and showed that this man gave a penny to everybody. People would gripe and complain, but he says, he didn't do anything wrong. And then he says in verse 16, So the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. For many be called, but few are chosen. Now, there's a lot of theology behind that verse, and what does it mean? Many are called, few are chosen, and so on and so forth. Well, uh, and it's generally believed that there are many that are hear the gospel, but there are only a few that are chosen to believe the gospel. But the point is, in proportion with the many... There are only a few that are chosen. Immediately the question rises, will there be more in hell than in heaven? We don't know, but that seems to indicate it. Out of the many that are called, out of the many that may hear, only a few are chosen, only a few are elected. Do you realize how unique that puts you in proportion to the, to the, the masses that God in sovereign mercy selected you. Matthew 22. Again, he says, after he gave this parable regard to the wedding feast, and after some that had come into the wedding, but they had not been, they didn't have the right garment on, and they were taken out and cast into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, he says, many are called, but few are chosen. In Matthew 24, This is chosen unto salvation. Matthew 24, when he talks about in chapters 24 and 25 where he is answering the questions that the disciples had raised when Jesus said that the temple was going to be destroyed and every stone would be cast down. And they said, When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming? And then what is the sign of the end of the world? And he answers those three questions in Matthew 24 and 25. And he talks about a great tribulation. 
And he says in verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Of course, I believe that's still yet to come, though some of this may have happened in partiality uh, in time past. Then, if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. There is an elect of God that is not going to be deceived. And there's going to be trials and afflictions upon the earth so great that if it were not for the elect's sake, They would be consumed too, but God will shorten the time of the trials and the afflictions for the elect's sake. In fact, and we don't have time to get into all of this, God created the universe for the elect. And God, in proportion to His people, measures out the the nations and the boundaries and the times. You see, we do not often realize the very importance of where we are, not only as we try to encourage you this morning by the fact that you may be small in number and you may be in places that you think that you'd rather be in other places. God has you here for a purpose. God has all of His elect here for a purpose, and they are in the minority in compared to the world as a whole. And he goes on in this 24th chapter, excuse me, uh, he says that if it were possible... The very elect would be deceived. That brings in, you know, this, the, the, the man of sin, the antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, the, the sign, the 666, whatever that may be, and all of that stuff. You say, well, how, how are we going to be kept from that? How are we going to be smart enough for that? Well, I don't know. Except I know this much. God's people will not give in to it. Hold your finger here in Matthew, in First Thessalonians. I want to read a passage. I mean, either these passages mean something or they don't. In First Thessalonians chapter four, I'll begin at verse five. I mean, chapter excuse me, chapter five, and I'll begin at verse one. I don't know why I said chapter four. I guess I was looking over there, see if I need to go back and read part of that. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. What's he talking about? When the Lord returns. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. You say, all right, what do I know about the coming of the Lord? Of the Lord? You know perfectly that it's coming as a thief in the night. What do you mean? It's coming unannounced. There's not going to be anybody that says the Lord is coming in such and such a day and he'll be here. You know, we had that last few years. Uh, I forget the man's name. He's supposed to have been a pretty sound, intelligent person, I thought, there for a while. At least some thought so. But he went out and she predicted that the Lord's coming back, you know, about a couple of years ago. And I knew one thing. I knew for certain the Lord wasn't coming back that day. How did I know that? Because the Bible says no man knows. Jesus Christ, as a man, said he didn't even know. But we know this is coming as a thief in the night. And how does a thief come unannounced? 
If you knew a thief was coming to your house tonight at 8 o'clock, I guarantee you, you'd probably be waiting for him with a shotgun. I would, or something else. I'd be waiting for him. A thief doesn't go around and say, Hey, I'm coming to your house in such and such a time. And the Lord is going to come unannounced. Then in verse 3, For when they shall say, Peace and safety, that's the wicked, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. For ye are all children of the light, and ye and, and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. And naturally, the Christian is going to be studying his word, going to be on the lookout, and so on. Now, that's just one of many places where it talks about the the, the Christian is not going to be uh, is not going to be taken away. In Second Thessalonians, I want to read again. I'll start in the middle of the context again, verse eight. And then shall that wicked, literally wicked one, be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, in them that perish. Why? Because they believe not the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusions that they should believe a lie, but that, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but have pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you. Now, I got ahead of myself with this because that's later on in my list. God has chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so on. So what, we, what, we do, what we're doing by saying all of this in light of these in, uh, passages in Matthew and other places, you know, I don't know what the, the, the 666 is. I just think it's the number of man. Because typically 6 is a number of man, and it's just 666 and... You know, who knows what it could be. But it does appear, it does appear that this man of sin, this beast, this false prophet, whether they're three or four different things or whether they're all one and the same, I'm not trying to get into that. But it does appear that they're going to be world domination politically, religiously, and economically. And what is man trying to do? What, what's our society trying to do? What's our government trying to do? What is our government leaders trying to do for decades? Bring in a one-world government, a utopia. That's what the that's what the existentialist movement in the 1800s was all about. That's what the abolitionist movement was all about, wanting to bring in a a utopian government, an idealistic government. Well, that's nothing new. What was Nebuchadnezzar trying to do? Bring in a one-world government? What was Alexander the Great, the Medes, the Persians, the Romans? Go back to the Tower of Babel. See, man is trying to bring all mankind together under one roof. God scatters them. He scattered them at Babylon. He scattered the Christians on the day after Pentecost, drove them out into, through persecution. 
That's the reason you have your little small groups and Christians scattered throughout. That's the reason they have those in, I'm used to looking at my mouth over here, <laughs> covenant. And that's the reason uh, they were scattered throughout Turkey. Or those, these regions in Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia, Cappadocia and Asia and those places. Trials and afflictions. Trials and afflictions. And when the trials get bad enough, God will even still take care of His elect in the midst of the trials and the afflictions. The days will be shortened. There will be elect people on this earth when the Lord returns. You remember... In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the latter part of that that's talking about the Lord's Supper, and it says that, that we're to do this until He returns. There's going to be somebody on this earth contending for the Lord's Supper when He returns. So if He comes back in your lifetime, Gadsden needs to be contending for the Lord's Supper and practicing the Lord's Supper till He returns as in, a, in His providential dealings. And so there you have in, in the as a group of elect. Many other places could be given, but look in Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, you may not. Well, let me just let me just begin reading at the first one. Luke 18:1, and he spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying. There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Of course, the lesson here is about prayer. And this judge, he didn't fear anybody, but... He got tired of this woman troubling him. He said, to get her out of my hair, I'm just going to give her what she wants. And God used that. God uses this. Our Lord uses this for you as an encouragement, saints, to pray. But he continues on. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith, and shall not God avenge his own elect? which cry day and night unto Him, though He bear long with them, I tell you, He will avenge them speedily. I just read half the verse because that's all I needed for now. But notice what He's saying here. What is it that God's people do when they go through trials and sometimes when they go through trials unjustly? And if we're not careful, if we get in the flesh, we want to get revenge. If somebody's doing me wrong, you know, I might want to do wrong to them back. I might not do anything physically, but if I'm talking to somebody about that person or that person's name brought up, you know, I might want to just kind of steer the conversation a little way to cast a question about that person's character. But notice what God said. He says, I'll avenge the elect. When any individual touches the apple of God's eye, you can rest assured God is going to take care of that situation in His own time. God knows what's going on with you, saint. So you don't have to worry about vengeance. Vengeance is His. He will repay. All we have to worry about is living like a Christian, even to the point of loving our enemies. As God's people, if, if, any, if true love is going to be shown in this world, 
is left up to the Christian. Now that doesn't mean that you give a a, a blank check. You know what you know what uh, the Christian thing is to do to a person that will not work. Second Thessalonians three says if he doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Not welfare. Let him starve to death. That's what it says. If he doesn't work, he doesn't eat. In other words, he needs to get off his duff and do something. The Old Testament took care of the poor. How did they do that? God said when you go into your land and you get to harvest your land, you don't take everything in the corners and uh, and stuff that falls on the ground. You just leave it there. And when you harvest your grapes and your trees, you don't get everyone off of them. You leave some for the poor to come along and pick it up. If they don't have enough duff to get up off of their stool of do-nothing and pick up the grain, let him starve to death. I don't know how all of this fits in. So you'll have to, maybe God will fit it in for us. But I heard a situation one time that uh, this man went into China and he was going to smuggle in some Bibles and they got the Bibles in through customs and everything somehow. And somebody went out and gave all the Bibles away to some Chinese people on the streets. This man, he really wanted to meet a true Christian. They found out that most of the Bibles were taken and just by people that said they were Christians and they really weren't and just to get rid of the Bibles. But to make a long story short, he finally found this one old Christian woman back in the slums and living in a slum area that part of a building that her father used to own before the government come in and took it over and, uh, and so on. And anyway... This man got in there, and he wanted to give this woman some money and to maybe buy her some clothes and stuff to help her out. And she just took the money and threw it over in the corner and said, I don't want your money. And he said, well, what can I do for you? She said, pray. And so he prayed. And he said he was kindly looking out of the eye while he was praying to see what she was doing. And as he did, there was tears running down her eyes. I forgot how many years it had been since she had heard another person pray. And he asked, well, if I can't buy you any clothes or food or anything, he said, what can I get you? She said she wanted the Word of God. He didn't know where he was going to get a Bible because this other person had already given all the other Bibles away. And uh, he went back to his hotel and he saw some other person that was a, that had brought some Bibles in through customs and... Uh, but the only reason he brought them in is because he had, I forget how many Bibles, but he was going to use those Bibles. But when he left China, he had to report those Bibles back to customs. And he talked the man into letting him borrow them anyway for the night. And what he did is went in secretly and cut out portions of each Bible and sewed it together so that he that it looked like they had that many Bibles going back out of customs. But he put this Bible together and carried it to this Oh, sister, and she kissed it. What I'm saying by all of that is God took care of that old woman. We do not know what we may have to go through, but we need to still live as Christians in the midst of trying times. Now, one of the prayers that I pray, there's two prayers I pray continually. One is from Second Peter, First Peter 2, uh, that we might be delivered and be able to lead a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And also what my Lord has granted me liberty to pray when he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I don't want to go through trials. I don't want to go through afflictions. 
far as I'm concerned, I've gone through enough trials in my life. Don't want any more. But at the same time, whatever God brings us through, I pray that He give me grace to live as a Christian. This is what Peter is. See, Peter is writing to persecuted saints. And what does he talk to them about first? The first thing he talks to them in their trials and afflictions is their election. A little bit later in that first chapter, he talks about them going through trials and afflictions if need be. Well, that little if need be is a three-letter Greek word that literally, literally, about as bad as mutilate. That's no joke. <laughs> but literally means it is necessary. Our trials, our afflictions are necessary for us. God will avenge His elect. We don't have to worry about seeking vengeance. We don't have to worry about occupying our time. Well, what's going to happen to such and such? Why, what's going to happen to these people that do this and that? God will take care of that. God will take care of that in His own time. He will avenge His elect. He will avenge them speedily. Of course, we know our election is, is not of works. We know that from Romans 9. I shouldn't have to teach you about Romans 9. We know that, that it's of grace, it's not of works, from Romans 11, Romans 11:5, And we know from Ephesians 1, let's turn to Ephesians 1, that's before the world. Ephesians 1, 4, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us and so on. I can't imagine a thousand years ago, really. I can imagine some things and understand some things that some of you in this room can't. Like I said this morning, I was raised when they... You know, my mother, thankfully, was had, was blessed uh, to have a building outside that Dad had erected that had a concrete floor where she could wash her clothes in the wintertime. But I also remember my mother and my grandmother getting together outside on a big uh, cast iron pot washing clothes and scrubbing them on a scrub board. I know what it is to get up in the middle of the night with snow on the ground to walk to the outhouse. I've done those things. But I don't know what it is to live as those persecuted saints when they traveled by donkey, no doubt, or by foot hundreds and thousands of miles because they were persecuted for their faith, driven out of their homeland. If they had any bank accounts, they were frozen. You know, the government took it all, and all they had is what they had on their back. And they lived in dens and in caves of the earth. You know, Hebrews 11 talks about those are people of faith. I've never had to live in a den or a cave. I always had a cold, I mean, a warm house to live in. I was raised to live in a warm house. My dad was raised to live in a house that he'd wake up in the middle of the night in the wintertime and be stoned to bed. I never did have that. So there's a lot of things I can't recognize time-wise, and I sure can't recognize being chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. But dearly beloved, it does it not touch your soul to know that the Creator of the universe loved you before the world was? And can you not thank Him and tell Him you love Him for loving you, to have fellowship with Him and to meet together with other saints and have fellowship together with this God who loved you 
before the world was. And you know what? According to John 17, you can go over there and read it later. I'm going to tell you how much he loves you. He loves you just as much as he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I will turn there. I want you to see it. Say, well, I can't believe that. Well, you better believe it because the Lord said so. In John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, verse 23, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Wow. The Father in heaven loves me as much as he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. But not only that, verse 24, Father, I will that that they also whom thou hast given me be with me, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. In other words, he loved us just as long as he loved the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? God will not love you anymore when you're glorified with him in glory and He does right now. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't love you. He will not love you any more then than He loves you right now. So does that not make you love Him? Does that not make you want to show your appreciation and live for Him in this world and tell Him thank you for what He's done for you? There's a lot more that could be said about election. Several more sermons could be preached. But my desire... This day has been to encourage you as a small assembly that God's not ignorant. You know, you're not here by accident and that this is part of the election of grace. Let's pray again. Holy Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you for electing me. I pray everyone who hears me can say the same a hearty amen for themselves and their own heart and soul. Thank you for putting up with me. And Father, though it no way matches yours, I can really say, much as I know, I love you. And yet, oh, for grace to love you more. So many times I'm apathetic and indifferent. Forgive me of such things. And yet at the same time, we long for the day, like old John when he was on the Isle of Patmos, And he said, come quickly, Lord Jesus, even so come quickly. We long for that day when we shall be housed with you together with all the elect, the multiplied millions, as the scriptures declare, a number that no man can number. And we shall behold him and really see our blessed Lord in whom our soul delights. And there will not be any waxing and waning of our fellowship with you then, Father. There won't be any dry seasons. There won't be any indifferent attitudes. There won't be any pity parties. We will be with you in the fullness of all that you've chosen us to be. And render the praise that is justly due unto you. Our hearts palpitate for that day. But until then, bless us to live for you as you would have in this world. And yet we're quick to say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory, and that we might be blessed to live a quiet and a peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. 
But if the worst comes, bless us to not deny you, nor your blessed Master, nor your faith. In Jesus' name, amen.